Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be looking at how to put together a remote viewing applied project. My guest is Lori Williams, who is one of the world's foremost trainers of remote viewing. She is the founder and president of Intuitive Specialists. She is the author of Boundless, your how-to guide for practical remote viewing. She is also the author of Monitoring, a guide for remote viewing and professional intuitive teams. Welcome, Lori. Thank you so much, Jeff, for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for making the journey to Albuquerque. I know it's not a long journey, but it's a journey nonetheless. When we think about remote viewing, one of the hallmarks from the very beginning is that it has been used for practical purposes, unlike many other forms of uh, mystical and psychic intuitive endeavors. That's right. It is. There are many, many applications, medical applications, law enforcement, corporate, strategic planning, and personal life practical mm-hmm. applications. Archaeology. Yes, uh, we've done some amazing uh-huh. archaeological projects. Future forecasting. <laughs> yes, future forecasting. Yeah, financial forecasting. So, so typically a project starts with a client who has a need or a desire for information of some sort that they cannot readily obtain through normal means. Exactly. So in any remote viewing project, whether you're doing something for yourself personally or whether you're doing a project as a viewer for a company or for a customer, there are always three elements. And the elements are you have the person who needs information, you have the source of that information, whatever the mysterious source is, and then you have the remote viewer who acts as a conduit to connect the person who needs information with the source of that information. Mm-hmm. And I know uh, through going through one of your books recently, you make a point of uh, noting that the remote viewers can control the conduit. They don't have control over the other two elements. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's that We don't have any control over, for example, a policeman's need for information. You know, like maybe the policeman needs to know what kind of car the kidnapper's driving. We don't have any control over that. And we also don't have any control over the source of the information, that great big cosmic database in the sky that has all the information that ever was or ever will be in all of time and space. So the only element that can be controlled is the controlled remote viewer. And hopefully that issue of control is the viewer controlling himself or herself. But at the same time, as I understand it, Laurie, uh, every remote viewing project uh, involves all of the participants. So the um, the client the uh, becomes part of the whole system, whether you can control them or not. Absolutely. Um, and so with the best projects, if we're talking about outside projects, meaning projects outside of me viewing something for myself, like, you know, I want to, I want to view that scumbag my daughter's, you know, dating <laughs> or something. Um, but, you know, outside of something like that, when you have a real project where you have a customer or customers or a company, whatever, mm-hmm. needing information, and you have a viewer, mm-hmm. you have to have a project manager to act as a liaison between the remote viewer and the person needing information. Because if you have the customer 
contacting the viewer directly, there's a lot of pollution that takes place. Mm -hmm. And it can make it very difficult for all but the most seasoned viewers to handle. Now, we're a big, we're big believers in polluting the viewer. Hmm. <laughs> and to say, you know, I mean, I know anybody watching will be like, what? Yeah. You're a believer in polluting the viewer? Um, there are many instructors of psychic sciences, uh, but particularly controlled remote viewing. There's not that many of us around. I think maybe a handful of viewers uh, or I mean instructors. But there are some who say the viewer should never be given any information, nothing but a coordinate number. Mm. And we disagree with that because if you keep the viewer always completely unpolluted, that viewer will become so used to never being polluted that when life happens and somebody runs in saying, oh my gosh, you know, my son just went missing, that viewer would be useless because they got polluted. Mm. So I am a big believer in creating resilient viewers who are tough and who can work under any circumstances. So Lynn Buchanan, my mentor, and I are strong believers in that viewers have to be like the king who takes a little bit of arsenic every day to build up from poison. <laughs> we have to make sure that our viewers have a little bit of pollution from time to time so they build up a resistance to pollution. Well, I know, for example, that many uh, clients want to work directly with the viewer uh, without having to deal with a middleman. Mm -hmm. uh, and I know... I did an interview with Joe McMonagall, a very esteemed remote viewer who uh, did a project we talked about uh, looking for an ancient Japanese empress and where she had been buried and, and so on, uh, an archaeological project. He, he worked on it uh, for months and uh, as far as I know, working directly with the group in Japan who, who wanted that information. Yes, and I have worked directly with companies or people that needed help. Um, I worked on a kidnapping case where I did work directly mm -hmm. with the customer. Um, but generally speaking, we find that it's a little safer to have some, a, a, a go-between, yeah. uh, mainly because there aren't a lot of viewers out there who have the experience and the toughness to handle huge amounts of front-loading or huge amounts of pollution. Now, I was a project manager once working with Lynn Buchanan and Mel Riley as viewers. And it was the first time that I, of course, where they were the viewers and I was the project manager and I was a little nervous about that, both of them being my mentors and people I really respect. And so when I contacted, both of them said the same thing to me separately. And that was, yeah, just tell me what the target is. <laughs> yeah, just tell me what you're after and I'll go for it. I'll, mm -hmm. And and their mantra is go for the unknown. So in saying go for the unknown, what they mean is every project has some known elements. Um, if you're a policeman and you need to know the color of the kidnapper's car, that's a known element in the sense that you know there's a kidnapper, you know there's a car, you know there's a victim. So those are known elements. And you could say to a viewer that's very experienced, someone like Lynn or Mel or even myself, you could say, we have a kidnapping, and we need you to mm -hmm. look at that. But for 99% of viewers who are students, we're all students in some way, um, the word kidnapping is such a loaded word. You know, it just instantly brings all kinds of images to mind. Um, I do a, a, an example. I use an example in my classes where I put the word criminal up for everyone to see. And I say, now, just start shouting out words that you think of when you look at criminal. And I'll tell you some of the words that have come up. Uh, male is one that frequently comes up, even though we know for a fact that not all criminals are male. Male, ethnic, dark, violent, 
um, creepy, pockmarked, drug addicted, violent, armed. These are all words that people have mm-hmm. come up with. And I, I make spokes around, I draw a circle around the word criminal and I draw spokes and we put these words all around and we create what we call a cognitron of, of stereotypes that immediately come to mind when you see a loaded word. So criminal is a loaded word. And if you were to say to a viewer, 99% of viewers, um, describe the criminal. You're going to end up with those types of words describing him. And then it turns out it's the little old lady who's been embezzling from the company for 50 years or whatever. And you've totally led the police astray. We had a situation. I I watched a situation where a, I think I might have mentioned this to you before, but anyway, where there was a criminal who's murdering people and they had a medium try to determine something about it. And she said, this person works in uh, something mechanical that revolves like a merry-go-round. Mm. So they started searching all these carnivals and it turned out the guy drove a cement truck, which is mechanical and revolves. Yeah. But the minute she used the noun merry-go-round, again, that's a loaded word. So it led them off on a wild goose chase in the wrong direction. Uh, so ultimately, you have to have a project manager who can help the customer really define their question. Because you don't want a customer who's going to go, okay, well, will the expected event happen this year or next? And when it does happen, uh, what will be the events leading up to it? And what will happen afterwards? And and after that, you know, you're going to get people who are just going to throw a ton. They want to know everything. When really to get the best results for a project, we want to narrow it down to one question per viewer. Or maybe one question for multiple viewers, but we just want to narrow it down because if you have it all over, it's like scattering buckshot, you know, and we, we want a really defined answer. So the client may have no idea uh, that they need to do this. That becomes, it's sort of like uh, we did an earlier interview about the monitor working with the viewer. The project manager works with the client in a similar fashion to help them focus. Exactly. Because... If you don't know how to ask the right question, how are you going to get the right answer? We found, uh, and I'm, I'm, Joe McMonigle will back me up on this, that how many times have viewers really been given bad tasking, we call it. If you, the, the results are only going to be as good as the tasking. Now let's talk about the difference between tasking and front loading. Tasking is the full question with all the pollution. We need to know the color of the kidnapper's car would be tasking. And then what we would be, the viewer would be given a neutralized version of the tasking that we call front loading. And that it would be, for example, the target is man-made. Describe the target. So we've t- totally eliminated all the details and we're just... In other words, you've eliminated front loading. We've eliminated pollution, pollution. as much pollution as possible, and we've narrowed it down. So, fr- so, so define front loading so that I... Front loading is the neutralized version of the tasking. Okay. And tasking is the full question with all the pollution. Oh, okay. So, so front loading is the information that you provide to the viewer... Which which is going to be uh, enough for them to get a handle on it, but no more. Exactly. Because we want to keep the front loading as neutral as possible so that it doesn't contain loaded words. And we also want to keep the front loading to help the viewer kind of focus on something. So when we start the whole remote viewing process, for your viewers who are not familiar with the remote viewing process, we start out by creating a foundation for the session in what we refer to as gestalts. So the word gestalt in the remote viewing context that we are using means overall concept. And we start out with seven basic overall concepts. 
water, land, man-made, natural, motion energy, space, air, and biological. Those are the seven. So th that, those would be included in the front loading. Um, well, those things, we, what we start out with is we start out with those seven words and we have them create a symbol, a little symbol that we call ideograms mm. for each one of those things. Okay. So they make a very simple symbol and they practice oh, those. So you may not even tell them that. No, no. So th then what happens is they do a little process where they come up with a symbol and then they have to decide what is this symbol telling me? Oh, it's telling me that there's something man-made at the target and there's something living or something that has had life, biological. Mm -hmm. And uh, maybe there's land and water there, motion energy. Mm -hmm. They might come up with those five things. Those five things now create the foundation of the session and they can move to each thing move to the man-made and describe it to me move to the land and describe it to me and they can move to each thing mm -hmm. so in the case of a policeman needing to know a description of a kidnapper's car if the only thing they've been told is the target is man-made describe the target then they can jump right in and start describing the man-made however you know they have I... no idea what so it would be is. better to tell them it's man-made rather than, as in many remote viewings, you just give them a number and say, that's your target. Let's think about that for a minute. Now, what I usually tell my students is do one target without any front-loading at all, just a number, and then do the next practice target with front-loading, and then do the next one without, the next with. That way they're versatile, and they can view with it, and they can view without it. They're not mm -hmm. dependent on either one. So when that happens, we have, in the case of the kidnapper's car... We've eliminated everything. Instead of giving them a number and having them have to say, oh, my gosh, this target could be anything yeah. in all of time and space, which is very broad. Yeah. <laughs> now we're only narrowing it a tiny bit to anything man-made in time or space. So they're kind of directing the subconscious. Could you just look at this man-made mm -hmm. thing for me? Makes good sense. Uh -huh. So now we, we know that in a project, when we're doing a project for a company, <laughs> there's a lot of elements to doing a project that people don't really think about. And sometimes the person who's not thinking about it is the viewer. <laughs> so we find that when we have viewers working projects, we have to make sure the viewers understand that for every hour that viewer puts into viewing, the project manager will spend 10 hours between all the work the project manager has to do in communicating with the client, creating all the documents, because we usually have a client agreement the client signs and a viewer agreement that the viewer signs in today's litigious society. Mm -hmm. um, we also want to make sure that we vet the client because we don't want to accidentally view for ISIS, for example, right? Mm -hmm. So we need to make sure that any client that approaches us for a project, that the viewers are going to be safe, the viewer's safety is paramount, and that they won't be doing anything illegal. So we have to make sure we know where the project is coming from. And these are things people never think about. They just think about remote viewers can view the dawn of time. <laughs> they don't think about how, how much work has to go into setting up a project before, uh, before you even find the viewers you're going to use. Mm -hmm. uh, on many projects, you're going to have multiple viewers. Right. Well, yes. It depends on, you know how I just told you that for every hour a viewer spends, a viewer, the, the project manager will spend 10 hours. And this is well-researched, so these, these are not numbers I'm making up. So as a result of that, if you have, I had 14 viewers on one project. So imagine, if those viewers each spent two hours, that's 28 hours times 100. You know, I mean, I mean, I mean mm -hmm. you're, gonna, you're, you're going to end up with a lot of man hours for the project manager. Mm -hmm. So on the, we did an archaeological project with 14 viewers. We had four project managers. And they all had their own duties. 
you know, to help. But mm-hmm. it was many hands make light work. Mm-hmm. We just knew we were not going to be able to have the bandwidth to do this project well unless we had more than one. Well, you're talking about something I know I mentioned earlier that remote viewing is potentially moving into sort of industrial strength. Yes. That's, that's what you're talking about. Yes, and the archaeological project that I'm mentioning is one I think I might have mentioned it on an earlier program with you, but it's one where this archaeologist, it's one where this archaeologist spent 40 years looking for artifacts in the ocean. He had 40 years. And then in our project, we were able to guide him exactly to the GPS coordinates and tell him what he would find there. And he did. And it was a very, very happy ending. And it's still going on because he's still investigating the site. But the bottom line is that a project has to be well run in order for it to have good results. And that involves not only a great project manager who knows how to vet the client and how to organize a team and get them to produce on time. <laughs> That's a big, that used to be a big, big problem where we'd have a deadline for the customer and then the viewers would be late turning in their stuff and then the project manager wouldn't have time to write up the report. Mm-hmm. And that, and so now we make sure that viewers all understand they don't commit to a project unless they can turn in their work on time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we also have to train project managers in how to get, elicit from the client exactly what the client needs to know. You know, because in a police case, for example, they might need a lot of information. They might need to know a description of the vehicle. They might need to know the condition of the victim. They might need to know where they're heading and where they'll be found and all these, you know, just a lot of information. So if there's a ton of questions, we have to narrow things down and decide which viewers are going to get which question and that sort of thing. And you're dealing with people, the the remote viewers, the managers, and so on, because this is still a, a field that is, maybe it's not in its infancy any longer, but it's still a new, young field. Many of the people start out as an avocation. <laughs> they don't begin as professionals, but at some point they have to make a transition from approaching this as a hobby to approaching it as a professional. I'm, I'm sure you had to do that. Yes, I definitely did. I went, you know, here I was a mom. I had seven kids and a new grandbaby when I met Lynn Buchanan. I was 39. And uh, we, you know, when I started this out, from the, the day I took the, the very first day of my very first basic, suddenly I was just gripped with a passion that I had to teach this someday. And so I said to Lynn, you know, what is your vision for this? And he gave me, he shared his vision with me. And I just said, I just feel like I need to teach this someday. And I had signed an agreement that I would not teach until two years after graduating from my advanced course. And I was in first day of basic. (laughs) So I remember calling Lynn when I hit that two year mark right after advance and said, I really want to teach this course. And he said, well, if you want to teach my course, you're going to have to come to my house for every class I teach. And he knew it was a six-hour drive one way, six-hour drive back, three days there. And I was a busy mom with seven children and a new grandbaby. And I also had a full-time job that was 24-7 running a refugee program. So I think, really, Lynn probably figured I would never do it. But I did. And I was like the bad penny that wouldn't go away. I just kept coming every other weekend to his house to be there for these classes until he finally said, I think you're ready. I think you're ready to start teaching. But it was about two years mm-hmm. of, of just continual attending of classes and sitting at his feet and just. Well, you're talking about commitment. You're yes. talking about both a commitment, but having the passion for it as, as well, because a lot of people are, uh, they can dream about wouldn't it be nice 
But at, at the end of the day, it's an enormous amount of hard work like any other profession. It is. It's a lot of hard work. And, you know, someone wrote me once and said, I can't believe that these classes cost so much. I mean, this is just basically a hobby for most people. And I started thinking about my brother-in-law who has a really high-tech setup for, for uh, pretending that he's driving airplanes, but he's um, flying airplanes. and simulator. He's got simula- yeah, he's yeah. got an airplane simulator. And I, I know it costs a fortune. I think about golfers, who's, what they spend on their golf clubs and their outfits and things. And I think, you know, really people are not spending nearly as much to attend a few remote viewing courses money-wise mm-hmm. as some of these other hobbies. However, if you think about martial art and the dedication that it would take to become a black belt, or my, I have a son who's a third degree black belt in Taekwondo, and the years he spent honing his abilities, and you put those two things together, you've got an investment financially and you've got an investment of time and dedication and hard work to make it happen. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, lots of people sort of imagine that this is, it's like a spiritual path and shouldn't be expensive. Uh, but you're not necessarily approaching it. It's, it's not as if you're not a spiritual person. I know you. <laughs> so, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but, but you're approaching this as a professional. Yeah, it's very true. And I think that it ha- I think for us to gain the respect that we need to have and for more people to find out about it, I mean, this would be such a tool in strategic planning, for example, for many mm-hmm. corporations. I had the, the honor of teaching uh, one of the CEOs of Sony from Australia came and took the course. And he and I are still friends. We still speak and write to each other. And, and, um, the thing is, is that this is such a tool for strategic planning. Mm-hmm. We are very careful not to not to cross a line into corporate espionage, which is illegal. But we are we do find that it's a great tool for planning ahead and and preparing for downturns, for example, mm-hmm. um, and making sure you have what's needed in the in in supplies and things like that. Uh-huh. But now, now you say corporate espionage is an illegal. Sure, it is using normal conventional means of espionage. <laughs> But I've never, I mean, remote viewers have the capacity, for all we know, to violate people's privacy, but nobody has ever been uh, convicted of that, at least since 1944, when um, a British medium was was convicted of, uh, as I recall, of spying. Really? Yes. Wow. I'd, I'd never. I'd, uh, it's, a, it's a famous case mm-hmm. where uh, she began getting information about uh, a British ship that was sunk because she was hearing from the uh, deceased sailors. Oh. And, and it got into the newspapers and it got written up. Well, actually, what happened? They didn't convict her of spying. The, the, the British government during the war, Second World War, they were concerned about you know, that this news was um, confidential information at the time, that the ship had been sunk, and uh, was this Nazi propaganda or, or, or mm-hmm. something, or was it endangering uh, the uh, troops that were out there? Uh, she was convicted of witchcraft. It was the last person ever convicted of witchcraft in England, 1944. Wow. So it was not espionage, but that's really what they were concerned about was viol- violation of uh, secrets. You know, I have a number of advanced students who are attorneys, mm-hmm. and it's great because I can consult them on this sort of thing. And uh, one of my students is in his 70s, and he uh, he was a very renowned attorney and a judge. Yeah. 
Um, he was a consultant in the Casey Anthony trial. And um, we talked at length about this, and he said it would be very difficult for any court of law to prosecute a remote viewer because, for one thing, they don't want to acknowledge that remote viewing even works. Mm. And to bring it into a courtroom and, and in this way yeah. would ha- would be to say, yeah, this is this is a real thing. I have testified in court ab- about uh, psychics. I uh, did some research with a, a now-deceased psychic, uh, Kathleen Ray, who worked extensively with police. And in, in one case, her information had been instrumental and there was a trial. And, and I testified in her behalf as a parapsychologist that this this is legitimate so it it has you know can get into court yes and and, and there are there's precedent for it i guess the what he was saying was that to prosecute someone for corporate very espionage unlikely. would be very unlikely mm-hmm. mainly because they just wouldn't want to go there most un, yeah. you know, unless you had a certain type of of no, and, and I just, I don't think there's any law against remote viewers doing anything if, if you're capable of doing it. I don't think it's a question of violating the, the law. It's not like you're breaking and entering. Yeah. And I, uh, you know, there was the famous case where Pat Price and Ingo Swan went into, you know, in the very early days when they were just testing this out, and they actually read... They went into a, a secret, top secret yeah. facility and read all the filing, the code names on the files. Yes. And, um, and that caused a huge investigation because they, they just couldn't believe that it could come from psychic information. Yeah. Somebody had to be revealing something. Mm-hmm. But then they did the deep investigation and found out, sure enough, it was from psychic information. Well, that's when the CIA decided to put Pat Price on their payroll. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and and, uh, and that's when the, the U.S. government decided they would spend $20 million on, on all this. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that uh, as far as projects go, if we're if we're revolving back to the project yes, idea, yes. that when it comes to certain things, most viewers that I know, I, I maybe certain teachers attract certain types of students. I don't know, but my students I know would feel very uncomfortable with corporate espionage or even spying on a spouse. Like, is I, this comes to me frequently? Is my spouse cheating on me? Would you do a remote viewing session? I'll pay you five hundred dollars. I'll pay you a thousand dollars to. See if my spouse is cheating on me. I always turn those down. Mm. I just find that very uncomfortable. Yeah. Well, uh, there were times when, uh, in the days when I was the president of the Intuition Network, I worked with intuitives who uh, were, for example, investing in companies, and uh, they would uh, give. Uh, the intuitive, the name of a symbol, a stock symbol, and say, you know, tell me about this company. How is it going to do? What are its prospects? Mm-hmm. Uh, what are its vulnerabilities? And that's perfectly legitimate. I don't mm-hmm. see anything wrong with that at all. Um, I think the the thing would be, like, let's say we were approached by Toshiba mm-hmm. to see what Sony was developing. That, to me, is uh, is unethical. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, that I, f- I would find uncomfortable. So, so what we're really talking about here is your own personal sense of integrity. Exactly. And I feel, you know, ethics are so different from different Mm -hmm. people. We once tried to set up a guild of remote viewers. And where where everything fell apart was when we got, we were having meetings, we had a board of directors, and we were trying to come up with a code of ethics. And that's where everything fell apart because even though I consider everyone in the room an ethical person, an honest person, Everyone had a different idea of where to draw the boundary between ethical and unethical. And uh, that was a 
that became a problem. <laughs> I hear from viewers of this program, some of whom are horrified by the fact that it was the U.S. military intelligence that uh, really got uh, the remote viewing uh, emphasis in the United States off the ground with their $20 million of funding. People think, you know, some people happen to think that uh, the the uh, U.S. government uh, does more evil than good in the world. That's true, and and that's why sometimes you know you never know when you mention the history of it mm-hmm. how it's going to go and whether the person's going to be excited like my dad who had been an old army guy and just that gave it legitimacy. Mm-hmm. If the military did it, it had to be good. Mm-hmm. And then there's the other people who are like, oh, if the military was involved, it had to be bad. Yeah. <laughs> You know, it's like, and people ask me, how many projects have you done for the U.S. government, Lori? And I say zero. Mm -hmm. Um, And I have been asked, I mean, Lynn asked me if I would do a project for the government. And I said, no, Mm -hmm. I just don't want to go there either. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's not necessarily that it would necessarily be bad. I mean, in Lynn's mind, it was a patriotic act on my part if I would do it. And I said, I'm sorry, I'm just not comfortable with that. Well, it strikes me that the lesson here is that if you're running a business like you are or engaged in these kinds of projects, you have to do it in a way that is consistent with your own sense of integrity. That's so true because you're the one you have to live with 24-7, right? So you definitely have to make sure that you're very clear with your own boundaries. And one thing Lynn drilled into me that I love is that there is no project worth losing a viewer over. So in that case... Every viewer has to look within and say, is this a project I want to take on? Mm-hmm. Now, since we do a lot of work blind, completely blind, I have found that it's a good idea if I don't know what the project is and I have mm-hmm. no idea what I'm going to be viewing and mm-hmm. there's no front loading, that I need to just kind of check it out emotionally. I don't have to even know what the project is, but I can kind of just reach out and feel it. And if my solar plexus twists up in knots, I know that I shouldn't do it. Mm. And if I f- have a, a very pleasant, warm feeling in my solar plexus, I know that it's going to be fine and it'll be a good thing for me to do. How interesting. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, there was once when I walked in the room and Jim said, oh, sweetie, we got a new project. And I went, no, <laughs> I didn't eat. I mean, literally, that's how it happened. And it yeah. came out of my mouth and I was sort of like, ooh, did I just say that with my out loud voice? <laughs> and I just had this instant negative reaction. And I, he, I hadn't even, I didn't know who it was or what it was or anything, but I instantly went, no. And he went, <laughs> well, you've learned obviously along the way to trust your own intuition. Oh, yes. And when I don't, I'm always kicking myself. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like I knew better than to do that one. Yeah. yeah but uh, yes, I have learned. And the great thing that I am so blessed is that Jim also has trust my intuition. I mean, we, we were driving, we had bought this gigantic motorhome. It was like a 40-foot bus. And we were on our maiden voyage. And we were going up from Texas to Seattle to teach in Seattle. And we were going through Colorado. And we were on some hairpin turns and up in the mountains with this giant bus. And it was Jim's first time driving it. And I was scared to death. Uh, you know, I was clenched up pretty tight. And, and, um, as if that would keep us from falling off a cliff, you know, the tighter you clench. But uh, as we were driving along, suddenly I said, Jim, slow down, because when you go around this curve, there's a big animal that's going to jump out in front of us. So he immediately put on the brakes. I mean, a lot of husbands would be like, oh, come on, you know, how could you know that? He immediately put on the brakes. And if he hadn't, we would be dead because a gigantic male elk leapt out right in front of us. 
And if he had been, if he hadn't slowed down, we would have hit it. Yeah. So, we, but it was, it was not visible. It was around mm -hmm. a curve, you know. So when we got around the curve, sure enough, the elk jumped mm -hmm. out and Jim was like, wow, that's better than radar. You know, <laughs> that's really, that's really great. Mm -hmm. But he's had enough, we've had enough encounters like that where he totally trusts my instincts. So mm -hmm. I, I'm grateful. Well, I, I guess it's very interesting having this conversation with you, Lori, because as, as I look at your life, I see it's taken you decades to get to this point. Yes, it definitely has. It's taken decades and lots and lots and lots of practice. Mm -hmm. And um, I feel that one of the things we're entering into right now with my students that's super exciting, I'm really, really excited about it, is how to set up remote viewing projects for yourself. Now, we talked about pollution and how 99% of viewers can't deal with too much pollution. Well, talk about pollution. How do you view a project for yourself without being totally polluted and mm. completely skewing the results with your own opinions? For example, if I don't, I was joking earlier, I, all my kids are married except for my youngest boy, but I was joking about who's the scumbag my daughter's dating, mm -hmm. and and that's a joke because there is no dating going on right now among my kids, <laughs> but... Um, but it, let's say, though, that, that, mm -hmm. that I did have a daughter who was dating somebody that I didn't like, yep. and I was worried about her, then I couldn't view that situation objectively, because my own worry and my fears and my doubts and my thoughts about him would definitely skew the results. So a lot of people who are taking my class now are not taking it with an idea of let's find the answer to zero point energy let's let's find the solutions to pollution and things which is how i always used to think about crv mm -hmm. crv is a great it's the answer to saving the planet to saving you know the humanity and all this now i'm actually discovering a new way of looking at the whole thing in that a rising tide lifts all boats. Mm. And if we can help each individual viewer to find answers within themselves to make them better humans, to make them more fulfilled, to make them happier, to make them manifest better, whatever it ends up being, eventually we're going to hit critical mass and it's going to cause the consciousness of the entire planet to raise. And so that's my vision now. And, and in helping each student learn how to view for themselves. What questions do they ask? And this has been a, fa a fascinating uh, exploration. We just recently did an exercise in my mentoring club. I think my company might be the only company that has regular mentoring for the students in the evenings uh, throughout, throughout the month. And one of the things that we discussed was how do you, how do you come up with the right question? Mm -hmm. um, and one guy said, okay, well, I'm trying to decide whether I should stay with the company I'm with. Should I... Uh, move across town and work with this other company or should I launch out on my own and start my own company? Hmm. So I said, okay, you have three choices you're looking at. So before we even go to those questions, what we have to figure out is what criteria are you going for? Um, are you asking this because you want to be happier? Are you asking this because you want to make more money? What is your reason for even thinking about a change? Hmm. So then he had to really think about that. He was kind of like, hmm... I'm not sure, you know, and I, it's like, well, if you did change, I mean, what would, why would you leave where you are unless you want, unless you're looking for something or seeking something? So we really dug deep until he came up with his real question and his real reasons for wanting a change in his life.
So a lot of times the apparent question is not the real question. And that's what we're learning is, is how important it is to come up with the true question, the real tasking, and then how to formulate that into a good two-part remote viewing question and, and neutralize it. And why would you want to neutralize it if it's just you viewing it for yourself? You don't necessarily need to. But the thing about it is if I'm going to view the scumbag my daughter's dating and I'm too emotionally involved, Maybe instead I could ask um, to trade with another viewer. Hey, Jeffrey, would you mind doing a project for me and I'll do one for you? You know, and we could mm -hmm. do it like that. And then I have already formulated everything really well thought out and I could give you a neutral thing. The target is biological. Describe the target. Mm -hmm. And you could then view this biological, which happens to be the scumbag. <laughs> 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 you know. But uh, and then it becomes more of a community effort. Yes, it becomes more of a community effort. So the answer to how could I view things for myself is either find someone to view for you and trade or um, or get resilient enough that you truly can view things for yourself. And one way to do that would be if you used uh, like a box, a three by five card box from Walmart. I think they cost like 33 cents. <laughs> and, uh, you know, get some three by five cards and start writing out all the questions you want to write out. Write the, one question per card and stick them in the box. And then just occasionally have your husband or your wife or your kid pick a, just randomly pick a card from the box and put it in an envelope for you. Mm -hmm. Put a number on it and then just view it. And that way you're blind to it. Uh-huh. There, if you have a large enough number of cards in the box. Yes, exactly. You'd have to have yeah. quite a few. Mm -hmm. But you, there's lots of questions you could ask. But in, in other words, just as we talked earlier about how the project manager needs to work with the client to formulate their question, to get down to the essence of what they really need to know in the most neutral way possible, uh, you, so it needs to be done for individuals doing projects for themselves. Yes, and, you know, years ago, um, Lynn was working with a young lady who wanted to start her own company, her own remote viewing company. And she was calling him regularly saying, I, okay, this, this project has come up, but I don't know how to formulate the tasking questions. And after a while, he became really concerned. He's like, that really becomes a key thing. You know, we think that it's all about teaching people how to remote view, but there's so much more to it because you do need to learn how do I formulate, how do I get the right questions, and then how would I formulate that question mm -hmm. into a suitable tasking question for a remote viewer? And that becomes an art form, really, mm -hmm. a great art form. And somebody who's naturally good at it is my husband, Jim. Mm -hmm. um, he would come up with, he'd be working with me on something, and then he'd get a little stumped, and he'd call in and say, I'm thinking of asking her to look at this, and, and I was going to ask her in this way, and Lynn would be like, that's great, that's really creative, that's a, that's a perfect way to do it. And uh, he just seemed to have a natural gift for figuring out how to... Well, and we talked earlier in our previous interview on monitoring how Jim is such a great monitor and project manager. It suggests to me that these two roles can often go hand in hand. They really can. And, you know, you and I talked about the, the negative side of that in that there could be telepathic overlay. But one of the things that Lynn and I are in firm agreement on is that if you're a good monitor, you know how to avoid telepathic overlay. You don't let your brain or your mind go into all these different areas and mingle with the target and mingle with the viewer at the target. You have to be pretty careful about controlling your thoughts. And there is controversy. Everybody loves a good controversy. There's controversy about 
Should a monitor know what the target is? Mm. There are those who say a monitor should never know because of telepathic overlay. But Lynn, who kept the data, right? We talked about that earlier, who was the database manager. And for the Fort Meade remote viewing program. In the Fort Meade remote viewing program, he discovered that when a monitor did not know what the target was, the monitor, unless very, very well trained, would tend to conjure up ideas in his head of what he thought maybe the target was based on what the viewer was saying. Mm. Oh, the viewer's saying this, 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 this. I bet it's a ball game. And instantly then the viewer is led astray if there is telepathic overlay occurring. Because instead of the viewer looking at the monitor's correct knowledge of what the target is, the viewer is now looking at an incorrect assumption, which then takes the viewer off down the wrong path and can destroy a project. So we are firm believers in that it's probably better for the monitor to at least have minimal knowledge, like it's a kidnapping or it's a it's an archaeological project or something, so that the monitor has a, a also a, a guide, a way to guide the viewer to the answer. Once we were doing a life path project for a, a person who needed to know about a career change, and I started describing a really overbearing man, um, and I really got into describing this guy who was very overbearing and very pushy and controlling, and and the client was a woman. And so finally, Jim is wondering, what does this have to do with the target? <clears throat> and of course, he has to be careful how he presents that to me because he's the monitor and I'm the viewer. So he says, move to the relationship between this overbearing male and the client and describe. Because he wanted to know how does this person even fit into the whole picture? And instantly the answer was there. And I was explaining how this person, that the, the question from the customer was how, you know, what career should I move into? I said, this customer is not going to be able to move into any career as long as this overbearing male is controlling her life. Then Jim said, oh, all right. And, and we kept going about a year and a half later, two years later, I actually received a letter from this woman. And she said, you describe this overbearing male. And she said, that was my husband and my boss. I had I had two males in my life at that point. She said, I left both of them, and I'm, now I'm very happily married, and I'm living in a place that is exactly as you described, and my job is exactly as you described it would be, and everything shifted for her, but she had to eliminate that. Now, I'm very careful in things like that. I wouldn't write in a report, for example, you need to dump whoever this overbearing guy is, because that would be, you know, I feel like that would be really stepping over an ethical line for me. But I would, I simply describe what I see, and then, and how those things re relate to each other. And I don't advise, you know, I don't say you should do this or you should do that, because I feel that the person that is the customer just needs to get the information and then they need to make the choices for their own lives. Which is what happened in this instance. It's exactly what happened, yeah. yeah. Well, that's good advice <laughs> for people. And uh, it strikes me that you have a, a light touch. <laughs> in, in doing this work. I try to because I, one thing I don't ever want to do would be to influence someone to do something that would be detrimental to their mm -hmm. lives. So um, that's one reason I don't want to view if somebody's spouse mm -hmm. is cheating on them because for one thing, you always think there's always a possibility I could be wrong. Mm -hmm. I could misinterpret something I'm perceiving. Mm -hmm. And if I shared this information in a way that made the person think, oh, he is cheating. I had a lady come to me and she was so insistent that she wanted to know if her husband was cheating on her. And what I found out from really discussing it with her, 
was that she was actually cheating on him. <laughs> and she was hoping that maybe she could figure out that he was cheating on her so she could feel less guilty and have a reason to divorce him. You know, <laughs> so, so there's always more to pictures, yeah. you know, than you realize. Mm -hmm. Well, I get the impression, Laurie, that you're professional, you're very experienced, which is important because there's so many pitfalls and <laughs> so many nuances that uh, the only way one is going to be able to work through them is by gaining the kind of experience that took you decades to, That's to true. gain. But also, as serious as you are about it, you do take it with a kind of light heart. I do, because I feel like it should be fun. Mm -hmm. I find that the subconscious mind is like a child, and the more fun the subconscious has, the more it's willing to share its information and its wealth of jewels with you. So I like to call my classes fun remote viewing. I've had a number of students who've taken from other other teachers and things who say, well, the, the big difference is your classes are really fun. Mm -hmm. And and Mel always said that. Let's let's create fun remote viewing. FRV. <laughs> so, um, so I do like it to be fun. And I like to make a lot of jokes in class for people because I find that when it's almost like happiness or laughter is the highest vibration. And when you're really in a happy state, I feel like that's when the subconscious mind is eager to participate. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you're just having to just grit your teeth and grind through something, the subconscious is like, no, I'd rather be doing something else. You know, let's not do this. Mm -hmm. So it's important to keep a light attitude. I also find that if people are too intense and serious, every now and then we'll have like a pre-class dinner. Be like, oh, so why are you, why are you here to take remote viewing? Because I want to be the best remote viewer in the world. You know, you're just kind of like, okay. So, <laughs> so I find that if I can get people to lighten up, they have so much more fun with it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just, they can have fun and the information flows when you're having fun and you stop worrying about right, wrong, pass, fail, success or failure, mm -hmm. A or F, you know, all mm -hmm. those kinds of things we've been brought up with. If you can just let go of that and have a good time, it's amazing how accurate you'll become. Mm -hmm. Well, Lori Williams, once again, a delightful conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I, I just love coming here and talking with you. Well, we'll do many more, I hope. <laughs> thank you. And thank you for being with us. Thank you.